Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for Canton Church, a campus of Mount Perrin North. We exist to help people live a Christ-centered life, and we hope that you are encouraged by today's message. Well, if that doesn't, if that doesn't just put you in the Christmas spirit, the Christmas mood, right? I mean, I, I, when I watch things like that, I, I got to confess, any time that I see children crying, I cry. I, I can't. I couldn't watch Extreme Home Makeover, not because I, I, I didn't like the show. I really loved the show, but they always made the kids cry when they showed them their bedroom or like their backyard that also, you know, doubled as like a NASCAR arena or something. I couldn't. When those kids started crying, I would lose it every single time. When Oprah gives them a house or a mattress or whatever, like I cannot stand that. So when these kids are crying, like I lose it. But I love Christmas and I love gifts. And, and you know, Christmas is fun, especially if you're a child. Or if you have young children, I think it can be fun for people of all ages. My wife and I have four kids, ages 12, 9, 7, and 5. So Christmas at our house is pretty fun. Uh, and so we did this year what we do every year. We have all of our kids make out a Christmas list, make out a wish list. Just write down what you want for Christmas, what you're, you know, you're asking for for Christmas. And we tell my kids what my mom told me. It's just a wish list. You can ask for anything you want. It doesn't mean you're going to get it, but you ask for anything you want, and you know, maybe you'll get one or two or some of the things off of that list. So we did that again this year, and all of our kids made their wish list. And so my wife, Corey, was helping our seven-year-old, Tucker, who's sitting right down here waving. Uh, so Tucker, she was helping him, and so she wrote the first item, as he told her, that he wanted Laser X, which was a game he had seen on television. Some of the kids are nodding right now. They also asked for Laser X. And then he said, you know what? I actually want to write the rest of my list. So she gave him the paper. And then he took the pencil, and he wrote the rest of the list himself. I'm going to put this up on the screen. You're not going to be able to see it, but I have it on my phone if you want to see this afterwards. Number one was Laser X. Number two, he wrote, was a pool table. Number three was a car, and he told me later that that's a real car. He wants a real car. Number four was a golf set. Number five was $1,000 that is real. We left all the typos in here. $1,000 that is real. Some, can I get an amen? Does anybody else want $1,000 that is real? <laughs> Number six is a desk with a light. Number seven is a bookshelf. Number eight is to, you know, furnish the bookshelf with 100 books. Number nine is a playground. Number 10 is a table. Number 11 is a surfboard. Number 12, we came to find out, was a refrigerator, even though it says refrigerator or whatever. Number 13 is a couch, is what we learned that that was. Number 14 was 10 picture frames. Number 15 was a computer. Number 16 was a dirt bike. Number 17 was a lacrosse set. 18 was a shed. 19 was a kid's trash can. 20 was a kid's grill that is real. 21 is a candle. Number 22 is 10 packs of flowers. 23 is a shelf. And 24 is a kitchen table. <laughs> now, when I read this list, because Corey read the list, and then she read it to me, and I've literally read it to probably 800 people in the last few weeks. But when I read this, I hated to break it to my wife that Tucker's moving out, and he wants us to furnish his new apartment. <laughs> he, I mean, he's looking for trash cans and bookshelves and a desk, and he's moving to college at eight, evidently. He's Doogie Hauser, and he wants us to furnish his college apartment. Not all of you got the Doogie Hauser reference, but go back. It's on Netflix. It's very, very good. Um, listen, Christmas is fun. But I think if we were just to kind of go, oh, well, yeah, kids make wish lists and they make Christmas lists, but that's, you know, that's what kids do. I think we would miss the point that a lot of us as adults or maybe kids in the room, we also have wish lists. We also make Christmas lists, even if it's not Christmas. You know, some of us, we want a new car. Some of us, we want a new house. Some of us, we are wishing for Mr. or Miss Wright 
Some of us would be content to find Mr. and Miss wrong while Mr. and Miss Right's finding their way to us, and we're okay with that. But we've got this wish list. We've got this, this list of things that we are striving to find, striving to get, striving to acquire with our lives, hoping for, believing for, wanting with all of our heart to try to come up with in our lives. Like, what are these things that we desire? What are these things that we want in life? Because we all have wish lists. But Christmas for us we understand, is more than gifts. It's more than a Christmas tree in Santa Claus. It's more than waking up tomorrow, or maybe some of you get the great privilege of opening some gifts on Christmas Eve. That was a family tradition my family never adopted, and I was always jealous of families that opened gifts on Christmas Eve. We always had to wait until Christmas morning. We open gifts, and that's what Christmas means to some of us, but we also understand that that's not what Christmas is all about, Christmas is about something bigger, something that we've been singing about together tonight. The Christmas story most often is read from Luke chapter 2 in the Bible. If you've got a Bible, you can flip with me there. If you don't have a Bible but you have a phone or device that has an app, feel free to pull that out and use that to follow along in Luke chapter 2. And if you don't have any of those and you don't feel comfortable stealing your neighbors, these will also be up on the screens behind me. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I want to read the Christmas story to us tonight. It's several verses, so you'll have to kind of buckle in here and follow along. This is what it says in Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger." Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angel had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Now, this passage here, along with the passage that we see early in the book of Matthew, we see the the genealogy of Christ in Matthew chapter 1, and we see the Christmas story beginning to unfold in a little different telling in Matthew chapter 2, but that is the place that we find 
the nativity. We find the Christmas scene. We find baby Jesus at the center of this scene. And we find Joseph and Mary. And we see the wise men who are referenced in the Matthew account. And we see the shepherds who we just read about here in the Luke account. And we understand from the scene that there are animals and it stinks and it smells. And they're in this place. And it's like it's not a place that we would have chosen to give birth to a king. To give birth even to a baby that wasn't destined to be a king. But we find these characters, these divinely orchestrated, unique placement of characters into the scene of Christmas. And I don't know if you've ever done this, other than just maybe looking at a nativity set that you may have at your house or at someone's house that you visit during the Christmas season. But I don't know if you've ever really kind of looked at these characters and who they are and who they represent even in modern time. But I think if we were to look at this, you could start with Mary. You could look at Mary, the mother of Jesus, who we referenced here in our service just a few weeks ago. But Mary was this young teenage girl. She's brought into the story because an angel of God appears to her and gives to her this incredible promise that she is going to be used in a supernatural way by God to carry the Savior of the world in her womb. She is going to conceive supernaturally by way of the Holy Spirit. She and her fiancé, Joseph, have, have not yet consummated this relationship. And so she, the virgin young woman, is trying to figure out, like, how in the world is this going to happen? And she gets this instruction from God. And what we understand, if you really read this story, if you really understand the nature of the story that's playing out through Mary in the Bible that we read, you understand that she is probably tasked to trust God as much or more as any person in human history. You ever thought about that? I mean, she is asked by God to trust him to do something that she had never heard of, something that we don't understand to have ever happened in history from that time since, but to trust him when he, through the angel, speaks to her and says, I have this incredible plan for you. The, the angel actually says to her these four things. He says, don't be afraid, which we all would understand why that would be the, the first thing. He says, I love you. Don't be afraid. You're favored. I've chosen you. Don't be afraid. We understand that he's helping her to understand that this is a big deal that I'm about to ask you. And he says, I'm going to do this amazing thing through you. And then he asks her to trust him. So Mary, this, this young woman that we see in these types of nativity scenes is here after nine months of carrying the promise of God inside of her, after being asked by God to trust him with something that would be really, really difficult to trust God for. Then we find young Joseph, right? We, we look at these nativity sets, and I, I don't know, maybe it's just because I am a father. I, I think Joseph's often overlooked in the Christmas story. I don't think Joseph gets enough credit for his role in this, and I understand maybe depending on how you read the story, his role may have been somewhat insignificant. And yet in the culture and the day and time in which this story is playing out, Joseph had every right when he receives the news from Mary that she has conceived a child or she's about to conceive a child and what God has promised to her and, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to stay with me. I want you to trust that what God's telling me and I'm telling you is actually from God and I've not been unfaithful, but I really do believe that this is something God is wanting to accomplish in me and through us for the sake of the world, for the sake of a group of people in Canton, Georgia, like 2,000 years from now that we'll never meet. And Joseph has the opportunity Culturally, acceptably, he, he could have looked at her and said, no, I'm actually going to have you imprisoned. I'm maybe going to have you put to death. He had every right to do that. 
and yet he doesn't. Even in one passage of Scripture, it says that even he is deciding to, to quietly put her away, to quietly you know, separate from her so that they didn't have to be married because he wasn't sure that he could follow through on what he was being asked to do. So we have Joseph. But I think if we learn anything from the story of Joseph, what we learn is that obedience the kind of obedience that he was being called to, to trust God and to trust the words of Mary that she claimed to come from God, obedience always ends well. Obedience always ends well. I know I want my kids to obey the commands that their mother and I give to them, and it's not because we're some kind of mean dictators ruling our house. It's because we understand that there are things that we know that they don't yet know, and so we're trying to help them to do and to be all that they need to do and to be. And so we call them to obedience sometimes. And for them, we always believe that obedience ends well. We reward that. We don't punish obedience. We punish disobedience because obedience always ends well and disobedience always ends poorly. And in the story of Joseph in this nativity set, we see that in his life, he was obedient. And in that obedience, in that obedience, we see that it ended well for him, that everything that God had promised, everything that God had asked of him, and everything that God said was going to come to pass came to pass in this story. We also read, I told you in the book of Matthew, there's the story of the wise men. The wise men come from afar, and they bring gold and frankincense and myrrh. And when I read this, or when I even look at sets like this, and I look at moments like this, I'm always confounded by the idea that these wise men come to worship and to adore and to praise the unwisest thing in existence, a little baby? There's not a lot of wisdom in a baby. We, we, I told you, we've had four of them. They're cute, but they don't, they don't bring a lot of wisdom to the table, at least not initially. Like, they think they bring a lot of wisdom to the table eventually, but at the beginning, they don't, they don't bring a lot to the table except just kind of being cute and kind of eating and sleeping and getting rid of what they've eaten, right? I mean, that's all they kind of bring to the table. And so here these wise men are that show up to worship this unwise thing, this child. And yet what we understand about the wise men is that they did something that you and I have opportunity to do as well. They received word that they there was a star, and they decided, hey, we're going to go and follow the star. There's something supernatural happening in the, in the atmosphere. We see that we, we observe the, the, the stars, and we observe all the things in the sky, and so we, we see that there's something that's changed, and we're going to follow it. And so they, they take off after it. It's like they locked in their GPS, and we're going to figure out what's happening. And so they start to follow that star. And what we understand from the wise men and the story of the wise men that I think all of us can follow through on today is that if we know who we're following, it doesn't really matter where we're going. I think a lot of times we're concerned about where we're going. We're concerned about where we're headed, right? For my GPS to work, I have to put in an ending destination. I have to say, hey, I'm trying to get to this place, and so for me to get there, i got to tell you the address or I've got to search the name, and then once you know where I'm headed, you give me directions to get to that place. But I think in life, and especially in things of faith and spiritual matters, it's not as important where we're headed as who we're following. In the story of the wise men, what they did is they locked in on a star and they followed after that star because it was leading them to the place that they were supposed to end up. And if you and I can trust God, if you and I can believe that God is in control and that God has our best in mind, 
then we can let loose a little bit on the reins where we want control and we want to always know every single step of the process and every single destination that we're headed towards. And we can trust and follow after God because we believe that he's taking us where we need to be. We also read in the Luke passage about some shepherds. Now, it's interesting to me that in these two accounts, you have these two different groups of people. You have shepherd and you have wise men. There are almost no two groups of people that would have been different in this culture and in this time. The wise men were these rulers. They, they wore crowns. They had gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The shepherds would have showed up with like their staff, and they would have smelled like sheep, and they would have stunk, and they wouldn't have been very educated because in that day and time, shepherds would have been the guys that just didn't have anything else to contribute to society, and so they just tended after someone else's flock or they tended after someone else's possession. So they were kind of hired hands. And so they're out tending the sheep, and all of a sudden, God, through another angel, interrupts the story, and then eventually through a great multitude of the heavenly hosts, interrupts the story to sing about and to declare that there is a child that they need to go and worship. And so these shepherds, they, they take off. They decide, this is where we're headed. This is where we're going. We're going to go do this thing. And when I read the account of the shepherds being included in the story, I come to the idea that's good for all of us, that God wants everyone at the party. Like when you and I make the guest list, I won't say you, I won't indict you, I'll say me. When I'm making the guest list for a party, there's some people that I may want to leave off. Not you, other people, the people that are coming at 7.30, not the 6 o'clock crowd, <laughs> right? There's some people that I would want to leave off. And yet when I see that God includes the shepherds in the story of a Savior being born in a manger, and that for all of time, we would have them commemorated in sets like this a lot of times. I understand that God wants everyone to be at the party. I mean, they're working third shift at a bad job they don't like. They're, they're doing a job that doesn't even benefit them personally. And yet God chooses to invite them. God chooses to include them. And I wonder in this Christmas season if we take off the role of being the shepherd, I wonder how many shepherd types of people we are isolating. How many shepherd types of people we are excluding from our parties? And I'm not talking literally at your house. I'm saying in our lives, how many people do we avoid? How many people do we walk around on the other side of the street? How many people do we duck behind and down into another aisle at Target because we saw them and we don't want them to see us? I mean, I've never done that, but I've seen that on TV shows. I know that that happens. Because we exclude, we we try to avoid, we try to get away. How many people like that do we try to exclude? Are we willing to include people that others want to exclude? It says a lot about our own personal character. It says a lot about our heart. Are we the kinds of people that include the kinds of people no one else wants to include? You have shepherd, you have wise men, you have Mary, you have Joseph. But at the center of every great nativity set, unless it's at our house and it's been stolen by one of the kids, is baby Jesus. Baby Jesus is right at the center of the nativity set. All of the characters, all of the people, all of the story, everybody's focus and everyone's attention is all pointed to baby Jesus. I mean, it's the, it's the purpose of the story. It is the 
ultimate focus of everyone's attention. If the nativity's set up right, everybody's at least turned partially towards the center of the set. Because the story is about baby Jesus. Here's the problem. All of us have some preconceived idea about who Jesus is. Everybody in history does. Anybody that's ever been exposed to the name Jesus or the idea of Jesus or the idea of a deity or a God or a faith person, all of us have some idea about what that looks like and what that means. And a lot of us get hung up in the image of a God who is just and righteous and judges sin and allows bad things to happen to good people. And we can't reconcile that with why would a good God allow bad things and we can't come to grips with understanding how he would judge and he would punish and he would exclude some people or he would include some people, it seems in our minds. And yet, when God chose to present himself to the world, he chose the form of a baby. I mean, if the wise men came to seek counsel from the unwise... It seems like everybody else came to worship something that didn't even really deserve to be worshipped. It would seem that if God wanted to show his strength, if God wanted to write his story, if God wanted to get our attention, he could have done it a lot of different ways, and yet he chose a baby. He chose to make himself vulnerable. I mean, because what you can't hear in this scene is the sound of a crying baby. But that's what babies do. And that's what Jesus did. What you can't experience as we just look at this nativity here is the smell and how dangerous it would have been for Mary and Joseph to deliver this child in this type of setting. And yet that's exactly where God chose to play out his story. The center of the story, the focus of the story, the core of the story is and has always been Jesus. He made himself vulnerable. He came in the person of a child, almost considered to be the weakest of all of humanity. A child can't protect themselves. A child can't defend themselves. A a child can't hardly do anything for themselves, right? And yet this is the way that God presented himself. To the earth. And it's in that child. It's in that baby. It's in the form that could fit into your arms tonight that God wanted you and I to find hope. Because it was unimaginable. It wasn't the way we would write the story. It wasn't the way we would bring about the salvation of mankind. It's not the way that God, it's not the way we would do it if we were God, and yet God chose to do it just this way. One of my favorite Christmas songs is the song, O Holy Night. You get somebody that can really sing, and they sing O Holy Night, man, I get goosebumps, and my hair stands up on the back of my neck. It's incredible. I love it. I may go listen to the Pentatonics do it in my office before the 730 service. I love it, right? Here's some of the lyrics to O Holy Night. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. The thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. I've sung that line a hundred times, a thousand times, I don't know. And I've never thought about the fact that hope is a thrill. The thrill 
of hope. And you know how you know it's a thrill? Because we've all experienced the opposite, hopelessness. And hopelessness is not a thrill. Hopelessness is awful. If you've ever been in a moment where you were just hopeless, where you literally didn't have any hope at all to survive, you were jobless with no leads. You were spouseless with no leads. You were moneyless with bills to pay. You were childless with a bad report. You were futureless and didn't know what in the world you were supposed to do when you woke up tomorrow. You were hopeless. And if in that moment somebody called to offer you a job, the thrill of hope. If in that moment somebody sent you some money in the mail, the thrill of hope. If in that moment you met someone that there seemed to be a spark with, the thrill of hope. If someone spoke life into you and to the potential of who you could be, there's this glimmer, there's this thrill of hope in your life. You know, the Old Testament of the Bible, which is really about two-thirds of the Bible, comes to an end. And God's people have not yet found the fulfillment of the promise that they've been seeking for the entire Old Testament. And then if you're in your Bible and you just flipped, even though it's not necessarily chronological at the very end of the Old Testament, if you just flip from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament, you start in Matthew chapter 1 and you start reading the genealogy of Jesus Christ and the story of Jesus Christ. And if you read it like that, you actually miss this incredible period in history. It was about 400 years long. It's called the intertestamental period if you're studying Scripture. And in the history of mankind, it's this 400-year period between when the prophets stopped talking for God to his people and when the angel shows up to announce that Jesus is coming. 400 years. When God had been speaking regularly to his people in the Old Testament, he had been conversing with them. He had been giving them instruction, giving them direction. He had been helping them to understand, even when they were disobedient, how they could make themselves right again. And the Old Testament comes to a close, and God goes silent for 400 years until the angel steps out into the sky to announce good news of great joy for all the people. The thrill of hope. That's what it feels like when it's been silent, when you've been searching, when you have been begging God to say something to you, begging God to give you direction, begging God to help you to understand what you're supposed to do tomorrow. And you just don't hear anything. You don't know where you're supposed to go. You don't know what you're supposed to do. It doesn't mean your life is all bad. It just means you don't have that clear purpose and driving direction that someone is providing for you. And then in that moment, what if God just stepped into your life with the thrill of hope to say, I have the answer? That's the story of Christmas. That the thrill of hope is available to all of us in the form of a baby, in the form 
of this unwise, messy, crying center of the story. It's the thrill of hope that's available to all of us tonight. If you would, would you stand with me right where you're at? I'm going to ask the guys back in the back if it's possible just to dim these lights a little bit, if it's possible to do that. If not, it's okay. And I want you just right where you're at, just to kind of hold that light up, recognizing there are people sitting in front of you. Just be careful. And I want you just to look around. The story of God is that God sent Jesus to the earth to be light in the darkness. And Jesus spent 33 years on the earth. He came and he lived and he did ministry and he recruited some disciples. And at the end of his life, he was put to death. But he empowered those disciples to spread the light into the darkness of the world. And over the last 2,000 years or so, that message has reached us. And we are now called to be the light. And what that means to me tonight is that when we leave this place, we are carriers of hope to the hopeless. You may not know all the answers that people may ask about the Bible. You may not be able to answer everything that they have questions about their life or their future, but you can offer them hope because you can point them to Jesus Christ. And so here's what I want you to do before we pray. I want you just to reach down and just blow that light out. You recognize how dark it got? We have a job to do. Let's pray and ask God to help us to be hope to those who are hopeless. God, I thank you for what you've done tonight. I thank you for every person in this place. I thank you, God, for the light that you sent through the person of Jesus Christ. I thank you for the ministry of his life while he was here and how he empowered those that were closest to him to be light on his behalf. And God, that message has reached us and we now have opportunity to shine light in the darkness. Let us be carriers of the message of hope to a people who are hopeless. Let us be on the look for people in our lives who are needing and searching for you. We thank you, God, for all that you want to do. Help us to find hope and then to give hope away. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening today. If you would like more information about today's message or about our church, we invite you to visit us at cantonchurch.com or facebook.com slash cantonchurchga.com.